The scripture reading for this afternoon is in connection with the Lord's Day that we'll be studying. Today we'll be studying Lord's Day 3, the topic of the repentance and conversion of man. And in connection with that, we'll be reading from Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. And we'll start at verse 7 and read until chapter 8, verse 6. Which you can find on page 1299 of your pew Bible. Romans 7, starting at verse 7. He has just spoken of the law and spoke about how the law convicts us in our sin. And he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Let's now turn together to the question of repentance and conversion as we find it discussed in Lord's Day 33. And you'll find that on page 549 of your book of praise. Having spoken about ungratefulness and impenitence, people who don't have true repentance and conversion, the Catechism now moves on to ask the question, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you been converted? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's certainly not one which comes up often in our circles. Often when we think of conversions, we think of grand crusades. Now, some of you kids might be a little bit too young to remember this, but perhaps some of you older members of the congregation remember the crusades of the great preacher Billy Graham and the famous preacher Billy Graham, which began in 1947. Many of you young people may not be as familiar with these crusades as your parents or maybe even your grandparents, but you've probably run into people who come from churches that follow the same pattern that was laid out in the crusades. First, there would be a rousing sermon to audiences of thousands. And after the sermon, there was a stirring call to come up to the front and pray a prayer. And then after that, the church would report on how many conversions that they had that day. Now, unfortunately, conversion from the world's perspective is often just spoken of making a verbal commitment or, and moving on to a higher state of being. You can find this in many religions around the world. It's a state of being in which we reach higher, we try harder, we follow the tenets of that particular religion or sect. And as long as you've cleaned up the tarnished parts of your life, you are considered converted. But the question remains, is this true conversion? What does the Bible say 
When speaking of repentance or conversion, the Bible uses much more radical terms than we find anywhere else in the world. We don't hear of simply making a greater effort. We don't hear of simply a change in perspective. We don't hear of taking it to a higher level. Instead, we hear of a much more radical change, one from darkness into light, one from death into life. And so we'll look at conversion's life-transforming effects under the following theme and points. In Christ, we find true repentance and conversion. We'll see, first of all, conversion requires death. Second, conversion involves coming to life. And third, that conversion glorifies God. The word that the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism use for the dying of the old nature that we find here is an interesting one. In English, of course, we simply have the dying of the old nature. This brings to mind maybe a a morgue, and you see a body lying there, and it's died and it's dead. But the German word that's used speaks with a bit more eloquence. It literally means to die off. The idea is that something intimately connected with you is taken over by death. Now, something in the medical world that would be comparable would be the idea of gangrene. Back in the day, if a wound was infected and improperly treated, the tissue surrounding it would slowly die off. Often the only recourse would be to intervene radically and cut off the limb before the person died. With this word, the authors vividly capture the image that Scripture is trying to bring to us, that Scripture is bringing to us. The dying of the old nature isn't an easy process. Many of you can attest to this. It's not an easy process. It's an intimate part of our being. It is who we were. But for the Christian, it is not who he is. We read in Romans, Romans chapter 6, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. The old nature of the Christian has died. Buried with Christ in his death, the Christian is raised to walk in newness of life. Now, like a conquering army, this new life in Christ marches across the territory of a man's soul. But the victory, although total, is not complete yet for the Christian. If it was complete, then Paul certainly wouldn't have to say to the Christians in Rome, we also should walk in newness of life, as we saw in Romans 6. Because the Christian would already be walking in newness of life. But that's not entirely the case, is it? Even the most battle-hardened prayer warrior can tell you that they don't always walk in the way that God intends for them. In fact, daily, they still struggle with sin. They can express their frustrations with the fact that even though by the help of the Spirit they have overcome many struggles and temptations in their lives, their battle will not be over until the other side of the veil, until they find peace in the new life that awaits them at their life's end in the heavenly kingdom. They yearn for the day when their battle will be over. 
But in the meantime, this battle is ongoing. This battle is ongoing in their lives. And this battle is not something which is completely removed from the rest of us either. The Apostle Paul speaks about this struggle in his life in the chapter we read from Romans, Romans chapter 7, with great passion and concern. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, I do. He goes on in verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Many of you here feel his words. You've experienced his words. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I wish that I could put it behind me. Why do I keep on doing it? I will to do it. I desire to do what is good. But the ability to carry it out is just not with me. And I keep on falling back again and again and again. Finally, in verse 24, Paul expresses the height of his sorrow with these words, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Brothers and sisters, what is going on here? What's the thread that pulls all of these thoughts together? There is more that is happening here in Romans chapter 7 than someone who is simply beating themselves down. This is more than just going in circles and wallowing in your own sins and misery. But what is it? When you acknowledge the darkness that remains in parts of your being, when you recognize the struggle that is going on with an old nature that desires to overwhelm you, when you examine yourself and compare your life to the Word of God, you are doing more than simply wallowing. You are applying light to that darkness. And this is vital to apply light to that darkness. The alternative, as John Owen once said, is be killing sin or it will be killing you. The world is a place of deep darkness. Many go around their everyday lives not recognizing their need. The more they live going their own way, the greater grows their darkness. But in the darkness, a light shines. And that light is Christ. So recognizing the sinful nature that is at war within us is the first thing that we need to do in seeking Christ. And this is the first sign that the Holy Spirit has begun his work in us. That we recognize and that we acknowledge our sin. We need to recognize the desperate need we have for a Savior. So how do we do this? The way we do this is through confession. This is the first sign, the first step towards repentance and conversion. You grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that you have offended God by your sin. You hate your sin more and more and you flee from it. 
Now at this point, you have to ask yourself the question, do I hate my sin? Do I flee from it? Many do not. Certainly they hate the consequences of certain obvious sins that are in their lives. They hate the impact that it has on those around. But hating sin? The reason for this attitude is that many men and women content themselves without looking deeper into themselves. They content themselves with words of general repentance without seeking out things to repent from. Are you such a person? Do you come before God at mealtimes and simply tack on a, oh, and please forgive my sins for Jesus' sake, amen? When was the last time that you confessed a specific sin before God? When was the last time that you expressed hatred for this sin? When was the last time you plotted a specific way in which you could flee from this sin? Do you, as the Westminster Confession puts it, repent from your particular sins particularly? This is not to say that it's wrong to confess sins generally and as a body. In fact, it can be extremely important. As parents, if you are confessing your sin in your family at mealtime prayers, then you are showing to their children that that struggle is ongoing, that they need to come before the throne of grace and look for that mercy. It's not to say that you need to confess every sin that you can think of, and if you miss one individual sin, you'll be condemned for it. It's also not saying that you need to air them at every opportunity, bearing your soul at every occasion that you have to pray with people. But the fact of whether or not you confess your individual sins, whether publicly or privately with an individual or in the privacy of your own prayer closet, confessing them to God, the fact of whether or not you confess your sins is quite a reflection on how you perceive sin within your life. Saints, when do you examine yourself, spending time in meditation with God, use, using this time to direct, use this time that you spend to direct your eyes into yourself and then beyond yourself. As the Canons of Dort 5.2 says, daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best work of the saints. These are for them a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and strive for the goal of perfection until at last, delivered from this body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. We don't naturally look into ourselves It's not a natural thing for us to sit down and examine ourselves because we know that when we sit down and we start looking, we find things that we don't like and it's uncomfortable. But we turn to Christ. By his Holy Spirit, the light of Christ shines in every corner of the darkness of your heart. 
Open your heart to God's examination. Pray, Lord, lead me on this path of conversion, repentance and conversion. Search me and know me. Test my inmost thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Having done this examination, this self-examination, and confessed our sins individually to God, our Lord calls us to a new life. And this new life is the second aspect of our conversion. We can look at Romans 7, verse 25 and following that we read to reflect on that. We read there, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Recognizing there in verse 25 that our flesh, which is Paul's term for our old nature, desires to serve the law of sin and remains captive to sin, Paul doesn't leave us there. Instead, he directs us to the one in whom we can find freedom. And having directed our eyes there, he calls us in the following verses to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So what does this entail? First of all, let's take a look at our Lord Jesus Christ. After he had healed a man who had been lame, he found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. John 5 verse 14. Likewise, he told a woman who had been caught in, caught in adultery, Go and sin no more. John 8 verse 11. In speaking with these two people, Jesus was not suggesting that they would suddenly be able to live sinless lives. In fact, we know from 1 John 1 verse 8 that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What Jesus does say is that God does command us to live with diligence and care, begging him to not let us fall again into sins out of which we have been allowed to rise. If we are truly repentant, we must stop continuing in sin. Now, this isn't something that can happen in an instant, and we recognize that. If we look, for example, as the, uh, if we look, for example to the person who is a smoker, if I remember correctly, statistics say that the average person who's a smoker who's trying to quit tries to quit something like 30 times relapsing into that can be overwhelming and it can make someone want to give up. But they said there, that's the average time in this little pamphlet. They said that's the average time that it takes someone to get over smoking. So don't give up. Keep on going. Keep fighting. And we can say the same for our spiritual lives. When we fall back, don't give up. Keep stopping with sin. Keep fighting with sin. Keep praying that God will grant you his grace and the Holy Spirit that you might be lifted up out of it because without him, we can't. Now there's also a second aspect to our repentance. For this, let's take a moment to look to John the Baptist for an example. Let's turn to Luke 3 together. 
Luke chapter 3. In Luke 3, John the Baptist is busy preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is described by Isaiah in the Old Testament as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his ways straight. And boy, is he ever a voice. Here he lays down a sermon of fire and brimstone, calling people to repentance. Verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Shocked and cut to the heart by his preaching, the people ask him, What then shall we do? You see, repentance is not just a matter of the heart. It certainly begins there, but it doesn't stay there. Jesus said of believers, you will know them by their fruits. And this goes no less for repentance. Recognizing this, when the crowd asks him what they should do, John has a ready answer. He commands them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. First, In bearing fruit, he calls them to move from selfishness to generosity. And does that with the words, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. He then follows that up with some more specific advice for individuals that come up to him. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. In each of these situations, John is telling these people not only to stop their sinning, but also to, and take note here, not only to stop their sinning, but also to begin doing the opposite of what they had been doing. This is important. I want you to take special note of this. Because in order to stop deeply entrenched patterns of sin, it's not enough to stop what you're doing. You have to replace your sinful patterns, your sinful habits, with other things. You are called to walk in a whole new direction of life. Now, this won't be easy. In fact, it will be incredibly difficult. Your sinful nature is dying. Deeply entrenched sin is hard to break with, both because it's what you're used to and because in the moment it seems to make life much easier. For the tax collector, consider the tax collector for a moment that he spoke to. For the tax collector to collect no more than he was appointed, collecting more was incredibly common. He would be taking a major pay cut. That would hurt. For a soldier whose income was actually quite small and who had food and clothing deducted from that income, it would be very difficult to be content with his pay. 
Now, if you add to that the social pressures that they faced of everyone else doing it, and of your own family having to suddenly tighten their belts because of you, because you're trying to live in a way of repentance, temptation to fall back into sin would have been immense. Moreover, all of the lies that you told in order to keep up your deception would suddenly start coming back to haunt you. All of the lies that you told saying, oh, well, we all have this fee. Or, oh, yeah, but this is something you'll face everywhere you'll go. Suddenly you have to explain why it's not there anymore. Suddenly you'll have to explain why you're suddenly changing your behavior. It's not easy to turn away from this. And yet true repentance and conversion does demonstrate a willingness to count the cost. It's represented not just by abandoning old sinful works, not just by being grieved by them and confessing them, but as our catechism says, showing a love and delight to turn around 180 degrees and live according to the will of God in all good works. It's a tall order. Outside of Christ, this is impossible. But in him, this does become a reality, and we'll see this in the final point. It's easy to look at what we just spoke about and feel pretty overwhelmed, especially if you're entrenched in something. To count the cost and go ahead with living for God, this is a difficult thing. And to do this with heartfelt joy, that can seem unreachable. So this is where we direct our eyes to the grace of God. One man wrote, his grace gives you strength to resist temptation and turn to do what is right. His grace rescues you from your obsession with self-love and welcomes you to the joyous work of loving another. His grace enables you to be good and angry at the same time. When grace works a commitment to God's kingdom and righteousness in your heart, you will be angry at what sin does to you, to those you love, and to the situations in which you live. And that anger will motivate you to be a tool for change. This is true. By God's grace, we are granted a holy anger against sin. We hate what it does in our lives. And we hate what it does in the lives of others. But there's still another aspect of the grace of God which is missed in this quote. It's good to be angry with sin and to be angry with the consequences of sin. But the grace of God does so much more for us. We find the truth of this in Romans 5 verse 1 and following. Let's take a look there again. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by this faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Wow. 
Think about that for a moment. We also glory in tribulations. These hardships that we face, these consequences of turning away from sin, by the grace of God, we can glory in them. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now we see that God's ultimate intent in our lives is not our immediate happiness. It's not instant gratification, but it's our holiness. That might mean suffering, but we re- as one man says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we find that satisfaction. We see that following in verse five, this hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. The love of God, the grace of God that's poured out into our hearts lets us respond to others, to respond in love. It directs our eyes and gives us strength so that our whole being is aimed at one thing. Our chief end becomes to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, not because we earn anything by it, not because it makes life better necessarily for us, but because we delight in it. That becomes our only joy. That becomes our passion. We do good works because they magnify God's glory. We delight in living according to his will in all good works. And it is by the grace of God that these works truly do become good works. For no other works are good than those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory. Some people suggest that it's possible to do good works outside of this. But it's important to point out in relation to this, that if God's grace is not working through us, not only are our works not good, but they are rebellious because they don't have God's glory as their main motivating factor. Because only works which are done in the right way and for the right reason are works which are truly good. Jesus does say in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Without Christ, our works count for nothing. But while the thought of none of our, work, of none of our works outside of Christ being good can be disconcerting, it does make the reality of Christ's promise so much more beautiful. For he goes on to say in that very same passage, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Abiding in Christ, we look to Christ for our salvation and Christ supplies all we require. When we fall short, we fall back and recognize that we haven't repented. We fall back into old patterns or cling to bits of our old nature. We cry out to him again for forgiveness. We look to him and root ourselves in him, not letting him go, because we know that there is no hope outside of him. And rooted in Christ, the fruit we bear from that 
for the glory of God is truly fruit. These are truly works which we can look at and say, these works glorify God because they are done from the right source. They are done in the right way and for the right reason. He delights in them and lets us delight in them as well. This is true conversion, brothers and sisters. We grieve because of our sins. We turn from them and we flee to Christ. Rooted in Christ, we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not just stopping what we're doing, but making restitution and acting out of grace. And finally, we do all of this not because we want to see personal growth and improvement, although that may come as a result, but because God has showered us in his grace, granting us the ability to recognize our sin, to flee from it, and to find our refuge in Christ and to produce works out of thankfulness that are in line with this reality. Due to God's grace, and God's love poured out on us, we respond with our works. Because our highest joy is the glory of God, and in his glory we delight. Amen.